Kind of by way of getting into tonight's passage, I want to ask you, do you all remember a couple of years ago, I think two years ago, December 2017, when Disney released The Last Jedi? Do you remember the the storm that that created? Um, so if, if you don't know, um, the release of that movie upset a ton of Star Wars fans. Um, so much so that fans actually formed petitions to both the Disney CEO and Lucasfilm CEO Kathleen Kennedy, demanding that they basically scratch the movie and replace it with a better version. Not only that, um, if that if you didn't want to go that far, uh, it, but if you were still an angry fan, um, many of them went to Rotten Tomatoes and just completely destroyed the tomato meter rating for The Last Jedi. And so I checked this, I looked it up, I think it was earlier today, and it still has a 44% audience rating, the worst of any Star Wars movies, worse than any of the prequels. And so like a lot of Star Wars fans, um, when I went to see the movie when it came out, um, I was actually really conflicted because I wasn't sure whether I loved it or whether I absolutely hated it. And what really helped for me was I got to talk with a friend of mine who was an even bigger Star Wars fan than myself. And that can, that can either be really impressive or really sad, depending on how you look at that. <laughs> but this friend of mine, um, he, he, he was absolutely, uh, 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 terrified and, and completely upset about the movie. And he said to me, he said, Andrew, sure, I'm, I'm upset with Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson was the director of the film. He said, sure, I'm, I'm upset with Ryan Johnson, but I hold Kathleen Kennedy responsible. He, these were fighting words. He, he held the CEO of Lucasfilm responsible. And then he went on to list a bunch of grievances. I won't give you all of them. But I'll give you a few of them to give you a sense of, you know, his, his ire. Um, he said, well, first of all, this was a Disney Star Wars movie. And that wasn't, that wasn't a compliment. Um, second of all, there was like Marvel humor in the movie, which has no place in the Star Wars universe. And then this was kind of the, the last, the last draw, the worst thing that they could have done in the movie. My friend was completely outraged over how the film portrayed Luke Skywalker. And I won't go, if you haven't seen the movie, I won't go and spoil it for you. But essentially my friend, like, so Luke was like my friend's childhood hero. He's like maybe 10, 15 years older than me. He was a young kid when the Star Wars films came out. And besides that, like he's just this iconic character that has this really amazing character arc throughout the whole Star Wars saga. And so at the end of our conversation, he just looked at me and he said, Andrew, you don't mess with Luke Skywalker. You don't. You just don't touch him. You don't undo his character. And that's what he felt like The Last Jedi did. I, I mentioned all of that uh, really to, to start with something of a, of a disclaimer or a warning. Because the passage that we're looking at tonight, the passage that, um, that Josh just read, starting in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, it might actually pull a Ryan Johnson or a Kathleen Kennedy to our preconceived notions of what Jesus' second coming will be like. It actually might disturb or disrupt or challenge our previously held beliefs. And I say that, and as I say that, I want to let you know that I'm not trying to like unnecessarily shake things up in your mind or in your, in your heart or in your soul. But if something that you hear from the passage or from what I say, it, it, it causes you 
uh, to reflect and to go back on what you what you previously thought and compare it to what you read in the scripture, that's a good thing. That's what we're going for. So I just wanted to kind of uh, um, prime the pump, as it were, to kind of get us uh, just thinking along the lines of how how is this different from what I've heard in the past. Uh, before we jump into this passage, let's uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, um, we ask for you to do what you promise to do with your word, that you would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it to accomplish. And so we pray that would be true of, of all of us, each and every one of us here tonight, including myself. Um, I pray that, um, that you would open up our ears, our minds, our hearts uh, to what you have to say to us tonight uh, through your word and by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, when um, I was first starting out in ministry, um, I actually I had an interview at a church, and I remember sitting in a coffee shop with the board of elders that were interviewing me, and I remember them asking me a really simple but but challenging question. They basically just looked at me and said, "Andrew, what is the gospel?" And my mind went blank, not because like. I didn't know what the gospel was, but because like, I didn't know like what they were looking for, like which answer do you want from me? And, and so like, I just kind of went through kind of like a biblical Rolodex of like, well, you know, if you were to ask the gospel accounts, what's the gospel, you know, you would, you would look to what Jesus said the gospel was the kingdom of heaven's at hand, repent, believe in the gospel. If you looked at uh, Acts and wherever the gospel was preached, you could say, well, it's the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the gospel is. If you ask Paul in Romans 1, he would say it's the, it's the power of God for salvation. Um, you see what I'm getting at. There's all sorts of different ways that you can answer that question. And the reason I bring this up is because I want to share how I answered it. Um, not, as, not because it's the right answer, but just I think it's a helpful way to, for us to think about what the gospel is as we come to this passage. Basically, what I said is, it's the story of redemption found in Scripture from beginning to end. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. But that story that is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in other words, I was kind of saying, this is the gospel. And this is all about Jesus and what he has done for us. And the reason I, I share that is because I want to highlight, I want to underline, I want to underscore for us that Jesus' second coming, his return, his promised return, it's not just something that's tacked on to the gospel. It is the gospel. It is a vital, important aspect of the good news of our salvation. And that's what, that's what I think we're going to see tonight. And, 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 and kind of just to keep thinking about this, um, you know, for centuries, Christians in worship have, have professed their faith by using the words, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Notice how the, the return of Christ is right there next to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what our faith is, is resting upon. That's the good news of the gospel. 
And so really, this is what I want us to see. Because Jesus's second coming is good news, because it's the gospel, we need to encourage one another with this good news. And that's exactly what Paul says. He actually says it twice in our passage. Maybe you caught it. But if you want to look in your, in your handout, look at verse 18 in chapter 4. As Paul starts talking about the coming, the second coming of Jesus in verse 18, he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. And then look ahead at the very last verse in our handout, chapter 5, verse 11. Paul again says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so, as we encourage each other with this good news, Jesus is coming back, we, we notice two things. Two things happen, or at least two things should happen. First, that good news provides true and ultimate hope in the face of death. And then secondly, it instills in us a readiness in the face of uncertainty. So those are the two things we're going to be looking at tonight. Hope in the face of death and then readiness in the face of uncertainty. So let's just jump in um, and let's let's consider the hope that we have in the face of, of death at Jesus' second coming. You know, right off the bat um, in verse 13, Paul starts with a problem. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is a, a euphemism, a way of saying those who have died. And so, as we consider the hope in the face of death, I want to start where Paul starts. I want, to, I want to ask, how are we uninformed? That Greek word can also mean just misinformed, ignorant. How, how are we uninformed about uh, those who die before Christ's return? Or how are we informed, even more broadly speaking, about Christ's return? I'm going to give us two key ways. The first is that we think that the Christian's true and ultimate hope in the face of death is that when we die, our souls will go to heaven and be with Jesus. Now, before I say anything else, the Bible does teach that. The Bible does teach that when we die, our, when believers die, their souls go to heaven to be with Jesus. I mean, I'll just give you two examples. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, he actually says he'd rather be away from his body and at home with the Lord. Not only that, you can look back on Jesus and his words on the cross, Luke 23, to the thief who repents and says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he says, I promise you today, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The Bible certainly teaches this truth. And actually, theologians have a word for it or a phrase for it. They call it the intermediate state. The state that, that we, that people find themselves in after they die, but before their bodies are raised. It's called the intermediate state. It's true. The Bible teaches it. But here's my point. It's not our ultimate hope in the face of death. If that's not our ultimate hope in the face of death, what is? Look at verse 14 and verse 16. Paul says that since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. God will bring with him those who have died. And then verse 16, Paul says, For the Lord himself, Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel, 
with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Our ultimate hope in the face of death is that when Jesus comes back, the dead will be raised to new life. That's our ultimate hope. It's not, um, it's not souls leaving their disembodied heavens to go up to heaven, but it's heaven coming down to earth and reuniting souls with glorified, glorious bodies. In Romans 8, Paul even goes so far as to say that we are saved in this hope. When Jesus comes back, the redemption of our bodies, he even says we are saved in this hope. And so to really just bring this point home before moving on, if you've ever lost a loved one, maybe a grandparent um, who has had faith in Christ, they are still, to this day, looking forward to Jesus' second coming. Because that for them, even though they are, or their souls are with Jesus right now in glory, they are looking forward to the day where they get to be reunited with their glorified bodies. And everyone gets to be risen again. So that's our first, I'd say, misconception. Our second misconception is that a lot of people think that this passage that we're in tonight teaches this doctrine known as the rapture. Have you guys heard of this, the rapture? If you've ever heard of like the Left Behind series, it's all about the rapture. Um, so this is a key, a key passage, especially verses 16 and 17 for that doctrine, um, as well as uh, Matthew 24, uh, where Jesus is talking about uh, the coming of the Lord, the end of the days, the end of the ages. And he basically says, in those days, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, another will be left. Two women will be at the mill. One will be taken and another left. And so from verses 16 and 17 of our passage, the Lord coming, um, those who are alive will be caught up together with him in the clouds. With this Matthew passage, there's this Christian doctrine of the rapture. And you've maybe seen it or read about it or seen it in a TV show or in a movie where people just automatically vanish because they've been taken away. What I want us to see is that these passages don't teach a doctrine of the rapture, but ironically, they actually teach something almost the opposite. Here's what I mean. And, and, and just keep this in mind. Whenever you're reading the Bible, context is key. It is so important. Um, you can get into a lot of trouble just pulling verses out of context. But I want us to actually read, read this passage in context. And, and here's what I mean. So look at verse, verse 16 and 17. Paul says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. You can see how you can get a doctrine of the rapture from that passage, can't you? But when you read this in light of its original context, and you think about the people who would have first heard this passage read out loud, 
they would have known far more easy, easily, more easily than we can recognize that here Paul is portraying Jesus as this conquering general coming back from war, coming back into, or coming back to the city. Really the closest we get um, today is like when our team wins uh, the World Series or the Stanley Cup or the Super Bowl and there's a ticker tape parade like the week after that. And they come into the city with all the, you know, fanfare, um, all the celebration. In ancient times, uh, when when a military uh, general would, would win a battle, they, the people would throw a ticker tape parade for them. But the interesting thing that they would do is that the people, when they, were, when they would see the, the, the war hero coming back and coming towards them, they would actually leave, leave the city. They would actually go outside the city gates, greet the general and the returning army there, and then welcome them and usher them back into the city. Knowing that is important because that is what Paul is alluding to here. When Jesus comes back, he's going to be like this victorious king. And we who are alive will meet him in the air to bring him back here. Not, not so that we'd be lifted away and flown away to some other world or some other planet. But Jesus is coming back to this earth. Um, also, and I'll be a, a little more brief on this passage, but that passage in Matthew 24, where he talks about two men in the field, one taken, one left, two women at the mill, one taken, one left. The idea is that if you're taken, you're raptured, you're safe. Um, but the context of that Matthew 24 passage, he actually says that in that day, it'll be like the days of Noah and the flood. And so when you read those words in the context of the flood, if someone is taken by a flood, it's not taken to be rescued, it's taken to be destroyed. The one taken by the flood waters in the days of Noah, that was judgment. That was, that was bad. That was not good. It's actually the opposite of what we might think is going on there. It's the opposite of rapture theology. And so here's, here's my point. Um, while the rapture teaches that this world is bad, that it's going to be burned up, it's going to be destroyed, but Jesus is going to come and take us and rescue us from that, biblical theology that, that reads the Bible in context, it actually teaches that Jesus is coming back to renew the world and that we will celebrate his return and usher him back, usher him in. Again, Paul in Romans 8 is really helpful here. In that same chapter, he, he teaches that the creation itself waits for and groans for the revealing of the, son, the sons of God. That somehow the creation, the world itself, is looking forward to that day when Jesus comes back and we are redeemed and we are adopted fully and finally. Okay, so to summarize, we've seen that our ultimate hope in the face of death is not some sort of intermediate state, and it's not some sort of rapture, but it's the resurrection, the physical resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of the dead, and it's the renewal of all of creation at Jesus's second coming, at his return. 
in that is our hope, and in that hope we will be saved. That's what Paul teaches. Secondly, I want us to look at how this doctrine of Jesus' return prompts or, or initiates or instills in us a readiness in the face of uncertainty. And we see this throughout the first 10, 11 uh, verses of, of chapter 5. And I really want to just kind of summarize the argument that Paul is making um, and then really kind of bring it home to our current situation. So um, I'm going to fly through this, but if you want to talk about this more later, feel free to grab me, pull me aside. But in those first 10 verses, first 11, 11 verses, Paul gives this kind of threefold argument. He says, since X, therefore Y, because of Z. So he says, since nobody knows when Jesus will come back. That's what he's saying in verses 1 through 3. Since nobody knows when Jesus is going to come back. Therefore, in verses 4 through 8, Paul is saying, don't let down your guard. And he says it multiple different ways. He says, like, don't be surprised when Jesus comes back. Don't He's going to come back like a thief in the night, verse 4. He says, stay awake, stay alert, in verses 5 and 7. And he says, put your armor on, be ready, in verse 8. Since nobody knows when Jesus will come back, therefore don't let your guard down, because... This is what he says in nine, verses 9 and 10. Because it's God's plan for all who are united to Jesus by faith to be saved by him at his coming. This has been God's plan from the beginning, even for before the beginning of time. So here's, here's Paul's point. We all have to be ready for Jesus to come back, even though we don't know when exactly that's going to be. Um, growing up, uh, probably like a lot of you, I um, I played Little League Baseball. And I remember, um, probably was my first coach who taught me this, but he was teaching all of us how to field. And he said, you know, we were all kind of in a semicircle around him. And he all told us, look, guys, before, even before the batter steps into the plate, you need to tell yourself the ball is coming to me. The ball is coming to me. And then he just looked at us and he's like, what are you going to do? His point is that like, as the batter's getting into the batter's box, you got to be in that athletic position. You got to be on the balls of your feet. And not only that, you need to have a plan. That ball's coming to me. I need to know whether I need to throw it to first, second, home, whatever. I need to know how many outs there are. I need to be ready. I need to be vigilant. What Paul is saying in chapter 5 is that he's, he's basically like my little league coach. He is saying, before you even step out of bed in the morning, say to yourself, Jesus is coming back for me. Jesus is coming back. As you go about life, you need to say, Jesus is coming back. What am I going to do? What's my response going to be? How am I going to live? So imagine, just imagine if before sitting down to take that test, either in chambers or in the library, or imagine as you pick up that phone for that first, first round interview for that job, 
Or imagine uh, before knocking on that dorm room door of that person that you're really interested in and about to ask out. Just what would it be like if in those moments you thought, Jesus is coming back for me? Take a second and imagine what that would do for your anxieties over that test you're about to take. I mean, Jesus could come back in the middle of your exam. Let that put that exam in perspective. Imagine what that would do for those insecurities that you might feel in that first round phone interview. Gosh, my whole future is on the line here. Like I need to say the right thing. Jesus could come back before that interview even ends. Imagine what that would do for your fears of rejection as you're trembling about to knock that door to ask out that that certain person. The point is that Jesus' second coming should fill us with hope and courage and security. At RUF, we talk a lot about finding our identity in Christ um, or, or being secure in Him and in our union with Him. And it's at Jesus' second coming that, that this really comes home, that, it's, that, it's, that our identity in Christ is, is fully realized and revealed to everyone. This is what Paul says in Colossians. He says that um, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. And essentially what he's saying there is your true identity is going to be revealed. If you have faith in Jesus, that's going to be revealed at his coming. And that's what he says here in our passage in chapter 4, verse 14. That when Jesus comes back, God will bring those who have fallen asleep in him with Jesus. So this is exactly what Paul says we need to be ready for. Christ's second coming for us to be revealed as being united with Jesus. And just imagine the difference that it would make if we believed and viewed that, if we believed that Jesus' second coming was every bit as real as our present life circumstances, as those things that we're worried about today. Jesus' promised return is every bit as real as all of that. So we need to, just to summarize, we need to encourage one another with Jesus' second coming because it provides hope in the face of death and it makes us, it gives us readiness in the face of uncertainty. And also to summarize, we said that Jesus' return is the gospel, that it is the power of God for salvation. It really is good news. But before we end, I just want to say, like, so what? Or... To rephrase it, what does it really look like to believe that Jesus' return, Jesus's return is good news for you, for me? And how do we encourage one another with that good news? So I've got uh, two daughters, who uh, Emma and Cora, who are hopefully at home sleeping tonight. Um, but uh, my, my older daughter, Emma, who's about to turn three in a couple months, um, Amanda actually pointed this out to me recently. Uh, she tends to struggle with anxiety. And at least as far as we can tell. 
And we've noticed that one of the most anxious times for her is when Amanda and I are getting ready to leave, leave her with the sitter and, you know, to come here for large group or to go out on a date. But uh, our daughter Emma also loves Daniel Tiger. And one of, if you don't know who Daniel Tiger is, he's uh, Mr. Rogers' little imaginary friend, Daniel. Um, and now PBS has this whole cartoon. Anyway, um, so Daniel Tiger, uh, they're encouraging, uh, uh, wholesome, <laughs> uh, family-friendly cartoons. And he actually faces the same kind of separation anxiety with his parents when they leave. And so they sing this song over Daniel. I won't sing it for you, but it's the Grown Ups Come Back song. And the lines of the refrain is, Grown Ups Come Back to You. Grown-ups come back, they do. Grown-ups come back. So one of the things Amanda and I have started doing is before we leave Emma at home with the sitter and she's worried about not seeing us again, we sing that song, Grown-ups come back. And it really does help. It relieves some of those fears, anxieties that she has when, when we have to leave. And one of the most beautiful, one of the sweetest parts of all this is, you know, we'll come back after they're asleep. She won't see us until the next morning. And there are times where Amanda or I will go into her room and wake her up in the morning and she'll wake up and she'll see us and she'll like, her face will just beam and she'll say like, mommy, daddy, you came back. <laughs> like it's the best thing that has ever happened to her. Jesus is coming back to you. Jesus is coming back. And we need to sing that promise to our own hearts and souls. We need to sing that promise to one another. Because that promise chases away our deepest fears and anxieties. And it reassures us and it holds us over until he does get home. And that really is good news, not just for toddlers, but for all of us. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is, you know, a day is going to come when Amanda and I will have to break our promise to Emma. We're not going to live forever. A day is going to come when we won't come back. But I can't wait to tell my daughter about the one who has promised to come back and will come back. At some point, each and every grown-up is going to have to break that promise to you or to me. But Jesus will never break that promise to you or to me. He will come back for you. And so I want to ask you, kind of as we close, <laughs> are you brave enough to acknowledge that toddler inside of you? Are you brave enough to acknowledge those spiritual or existential anxieties, worries, fears, that, that deep fear that, what if I'm left all alone? Are you brave enough to acknowledge it and then look to Jesus and remember that he is coming back for you? That's the hope of the gospel. So let's sing that. Let's encourage each other with that. Let's believe and look forward to Jesus' promised second coming. Would you pray with me?